Psalm chapter 36. Now many psalms um, are easily recognized and fall into specific well-defined categories. As we've been going through the psalms here, um, you'll see that there are some psalms that fall into the category of personal lament or a national lament, which is where the psalmist pours out his heart. This usually involves a prayer of some sort. Other hymns are hymns of praise or thanksgiving. There are psalms that fall into what are referred to as wisdom psalms, where the primary purpose is to instruct or to teach. There's psalms of confidence, where the sole purpose of the psalm is to express confidence or trust in the Lord. There are also what we refer to as royal or messianic psalms that are reflections of Christ or the King. Psalm chapter 2 is a good example of that, where we see the interplay between the the, uh, the earth and the kings, or King David, as well as the Messiah, and how that um, interaction plays out with the nations rising up against the king and ultimately rising up against Christ. Today, the psalm we're looking at does not easily fit into any one of those categories. And so we can even create a whole new category of psalms that don't fit into other categories. This morning... This particular psalm has sort of the attributes of three other types. It's Parts of it look like a wisdom psalm, and it's written that way. Parts of it look like a praise psalm, and then parts of it look like a lament or prayer. The primary theme of the psalm today is a contrast between the wickedness of man and God's loyalty, or God's faithfulness. Now that's a little bit striking because generally in the Psalms when you see the wickedness of man it's contracted or contrasted with the righteousness of God or the righteousness of God's people. Which would make sense, you know, if I were to say, you know, play a word association game with you and I said just what's the first word that comes to your mind when I say this word and I ask you to do opposites. If I were to say good, you'd say what? Bad, right? If I say right, you would say so when it comes to this, if I say something like wickedness, what would your response be? Yeah, righteousness, right? And that's kind of what you see in the scriptures because righteousness is always contrasted with wickedness. But in this particular psalm, the psalmist does something different. He contrasts the wickedness of man with the faithfulness of God, which is a little bit striking or a little bit odd until you realize that that's exactly what the gospel is. It's the wickedness of man contrasted with the faithfulness and loyalty of God. In fact, throughout the book of Romans, that's exactly what we see where it paints this picture of man in rebellion against God, turning his back on God, and God's response is his goodness, his kindness, and his faithfulness through sending Christ to pay the penalty for our sins. And so in the, in the gospel, what you have is a contrast between the wickedness that resides in the heart of man and the goodness, kindness, and faithfulness that we find in God. And so we're going to see that reflected in this psalm today. And as we've, as we've pointed this out before, what I typically like to do when we get into the psalms is to help us to appreciate the poetry of the psalm. And so we'll spend a little bit of time doing the technical stuff as we always do, and then we get into the actual teaching of it. From a structural standpoint, there's going to be three different parts to this psalm. It breaks down easily into three parts. The first part is verses 1 through four, and that's written like a wisdom psalm, and it focuses on the wickedness of man. The next section is verses five through nine, that's written like a hymn of praise, and that focuses on the faithfulness of God. 
The last section then is the last few verses, verses 10 through 12, and those are written like a lament or a prayer, and they focus on God's protection. And so again, three parts of this psalm. You've got the wisdom part in the first four verses. You've got the hymn of praise in the next section, verses 5 through 9, and then you have the prayer of the lament in the last section, verses 10 through 12. And so we'll break it down that way. Now there's also um, sort of a structural component to this psalm as well. And what I mean by that is, um, in the scriptures, oftentimes you find something called chiastic structures. One way to describe it is almost, sometimes they can look sort of like an X, and it's the way that the text is arranged. Other times it's kind of a slightly different. But the way this works out in this one is there is a structural component to the psalm too. In verses 1 through 4, it'll talk about man's wickedness. I'm going to kind of try to do a a visual image for you here, but you basically have man's wickedness, and that would be like your point A. Okay, and it's the first four verses. And then it jumps into a slightly different topic on the faithfulness of God, and you would indent that if you were, say, drawing this psalm out. Okay, and that's the faithfulness of God. And then there's another small section, deals with the faithfulness of God again, that would go right beneath that, but then it goes back out, and it references the wickedness of man again. It's referred to as a chiastic structure because the way it looks is sort of A, B, B, A, and it comes back out. And it's just part of a way of arranging something, and we see that oftentimes um, in the scriptures. There's something that Paul does in in 1 Timothy as well, um, where he uses a very similar structure as he gives a small hymn there. It's not so easy to see as we go through our outline today because I want to focus on the three main points, but as you were to look at this, you would see that that's kind of the way it's broken out, where it says the wickedness of man, faithfulness of God, faithfulness of God, back out, the very last thing he does, go back to the wickedness of man, and he prays. So there's, again, a structural... Um, structure to it, not just a topical structure. We're going to focus on the topical structure today, if that makes sense. How about some of the poetic elements? Um, anybody know what anthropomorphism is? Yes. It's attributing uh, human characteristics to an animal. Yeah, animal Disney or inanimate. Yeah, Disney characters, inanimate objects, stuff like that. This psalm, right out of the box, starts with that. Verse one: Transgression speaks to the ungodly with his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. For it, which is transgression, flatters him in his own eyes. Well, we know that transgression is, an, is it's not even an object. It's a concept, an idea, right? But David attributes to it the ability to speak, the ability to flatter. That's anthropomorphism. We'll find that sometimes in the Psalms. It makes it come alive. It's a poetic tool that's used. Word pictures are also... Um, found quite often in the Psalms. A word picture is basically, it's almost like taking words and using them as a paintbrush and painting this picture. And they're designed to draw out emotions or to put images in your head. And this Psalm is filled with word pictures. Uh, Probably more so than any of the Psalms that we've looked at in the past or that we're going to be looking at in the future. If you look at uh, verse 4, he says he plans wickedness upon his bed. He sets himself on a path that is not good. That's a word picture. The fact that you can now visualize him in his bed at night, going over in his mind, planning his wickedness, focusing on his wickedness, making his plans the day before, things that he wants to do. A little bit later, um, if you look at uh, verse 8, it says, "...they drink their fill of the abundance of your house." And you give them to drink of the rivers of your delight. That's a word picture. You can almost imagine that. A torrent of a river. Filling yourself up with drinking. Getting drunk. What about the foot of pride? Look at verse 11. 
Let not the foot of pride come upon me, and let not the hand of the wicked drive me away. That's right out of a military picture, the idea of taking your boot and putting it on the neck of the one that you conquer. But he twists it around a little bit, and he refers to the foot of pride. He uses this military picture, but instead of it being an external enemy, it's this internal enemy of pride that puts its boot on his neck. It conquers him. So you get these amazing... Word pictures here. Verse 12, um, There the doers of iniquity have fallen. They have thrust down and cannot rise up. Now that's not to be taken in a literal sense. He's referring to those who do iniquity as ultimately having their judgment sealed. Another way to say it. But this picture of them falling and they, they can't get up, they struggle. So there's these amazing word pictures that are used throughout this psalm, and you can look for some others as we go through it, that help us to develop this um, picture, these visual imagery, this visual imagery as we go through the psalm. Anybody know what simile is? It's a, yeah, it's where you use things like like or as. If you look at um, verse 6, you'll see some of that. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like a great deep. Typically, the reason you're doing this is you're trying to um, draw an association between two things that are not really often similar, but you're making them similar. And so to say that your righteousness is like the mountains of God, it's painting this picture of grand, grandiose, large. Um, And so he uses simile here as well. There's another interesting one here. Anybody know what zoomorphism is? You don't see it a lot, but you do see it in the Psalms. That's where you actually take an attribute of an animal and apply it to either other individuals or to God. Look at verse 7. Did you realize God has wings? Most of you are thinking that those are reserved for angels. Well, God doesn't really have wings, but he takes these attributes of of wings. He says... um, how precious is your loving kindness, O God, and the children of men take refuge in the shadow of your wings. You can almost imagine what that might look like. And what we have is protection. And so it's a way of describing how boring it would have been for him just to say, oh, they seek refuge in your protection. Instead, he paints this picture and lets our imagination run a little wild with it. And so we see all of these poetic elements that are, are designed to help us to appreciate not just what's written, but how the psalm is written. And I think we do a disservice if we just read through it and don't pay attention to some of those things. There's another thing, and I I can't remember the exact term for it. I don't know why I I was drawing a blank on this, but if you look at verse 5, he says, Your loving kindness, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the skies. That's another um, tool that's often used in Hebrew poetry. To um, It's a form of exaggeration. You might call it hyperbole. You know that it goes to the ends of the earth. You know, if you say something to somebody, I would, I would go to the ends of the earth for you. Do you really mean you're going to go to the ends of the earth? Well, first off, there are no ends. Walk in circles, right? But you're, it's, a, it's a form of exaggeration. You're trying to drive home a, a point to say, I'm willing to do anything. But how boring that is to say, right? So to say, I'll go to the ends of the earth. And this is, this is a tool often used in the scriptures to... to um, exaggerate a principle to drive home a point and so he likens here the loving kindness of the Lord his faithfulness says it goes all the way up to the heavens something you can't reach you can't even fathom what his faithfulness must truly be like because it extends all the way to that all the way down to the depths of the ocean and again there's a a fancy term for that it'll probably come to me some way 
halfway through the message this morning. So that's just to help us appreciate some of what's written here. So as we go through it now, as we focus on the teaching, what the psalmist wants us to understand, kind of pay attention to those things as they, as they come up. Let's go ahead and start with um, the first four verses of this. David is going to talk about now the wickedness of man. I labeled this, David bemoans the character of the wicked. David bemoans the character of the wicked. And he's going to focus on true, two truths about the wicked, or we'll say those who don't know the Lord, those who are unsaved. There's any number of ways that we can categorize that. The first truth is this, the ungodly do not fear God. Now that just is common sense to us, but look at verses 1 and 2. He says, transgression speaks to the ungodly within his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes, for it flatters him in his own eyes concerning the discovery of his iniquity and the hatred of it. If you have an NIV version of the Bible or a Holman, you may notice a slightly different translation. It reads like this, I have a message from God in my heart concerning the sinfulness of the wicked. There is no fear of God before their eyes. The reason, again, for the slightly different translations is Hebrew poetry is extremely difficult to translate. Hebrews difficult in and of itself, but poetry gets much more difficult, so you'll find different, slightly slight variances in your English Bibles that might not necessarily match exactly what I'm reading. But the point is pretty clear here, that what he's saying is that the wicked don't fear the Lord because they flatter themselves in their sin and they're incapable of seeing or even hating their own sin. When I was, I think it was when I was either late middle school or early high school, I had a rather biting wit about me. And because of that, I would get invited at lunchtime to sit. I would walk into the lunchroom and literally I would have friends that would say, come sit with us, come sit with us. And the reason for that was I would spend that time ridiculing and mocking others. And I was good at it. I had that biting wit, and they, they loved it. And so I would walk in, and they would invite me to sit with them. Please sit with us here! And they would point out somebody they wanted me to begin to rip up one side and down the other side. And to be real honest, I relished it. I enjoyed it. I loved the attention. Now, that's wickedness, folks. We all know that. I was unsaved at the time. But what's interesting is I was flattered by that. I felt good about that. It was a skill that I possessed wasn't a good skill. And to some degree, even after I got saved, I still was like that. I think I've shared a story with you before about a paper that I had to write when I was in seminary where I had to critique a particular theological position of another author. We were handed an article by an author, and we as a class had to critique that article. And after I'd done so, my professor called me into his office, and he said, I want to talk to you about your paper. I said, great. From a content standpoint, he said he appreciated what was there, but he did not appreciate the tone. And part of it was because the way that I critiqued this individual was to attack him personally. It wasn't enough that I simply critique his ideas, but the way that I went about it was fairly biting. It was fairly accusatory. There's an individual that I I get regular emails from, who uh, he's an eschatology expert, focuses on the pre-wrath position of the rapture. And one of the things that I often find with his material is is as he critiques those who hold different positions, he's very biting and very accusatory. And I've actually emailed him and said, man, I love your material, but sometimes I have a hard time getting past 
the accusations and the biting nature, could you just maybe keep your commentary to critiquing his or these positions instead of making them sound as if they're these wicked, evil people who are bent on destroying those who disagree with you? And he responded back, he said, you know, I, yeah, I've always had that issue. And for a while, he had kind of backed off. Well, more recently now, he's back to that old biting nature. And it reminds me of my own sense of humor sometimes can be that way. We can allow our sin, our wickedness, to flatter us. And sometimes we are unable to see or to even hate our own sin. Now, fortunately, because of some individuals that have pointed those things out to me because of growth in Christ, I find myself not liking that about myself. And there are times I can fall into that trap. And I have to remind myself to not use such biting humor at times, to not be so accusatory at times, to stick to the content and not the person. Well, the problem is that the world doesn't have the Holy Spirit, doesn't have Christ to help them do that. And so the psalmist starts out here by saying that the the wicked, the ungodly, have that in their heart. It drives them, it speaks to them, it flatters them, and they're incapable of seeing their own sin, let alone hating their own sin. I think we sometimes forget that when we look at the world. We kind of expect the world to understand us and understand our position and understand godly things, and we forget that they're just doing what's in their heart. They're just doing what's in them. We shouldn't be surprised at what we see going on in these last few years with the change in politics and the growth of certain offensive things within our culture and our society that now, just five years ago, we looked at and went, that would never happen here, and now we're going, wow, we can't believe it's happening here. They're flat of themselves. You know, I think about the some of the stuff we've seen with the abortion debate, well, while much of the United States populace is moving further and further away from favoring abortion because they see what it is, especially within that millennial generation, it's rather interesting how many of them are starting to go, yeah, there's just something wrong with this. And so um, there's been a movement away from that. But what have we seen on the opposite side of that? The pushback by politicians and others have been new laws to even allow for the termination of an aborted baby after they survive an abortion. And when you listen to some of that, um, you can sense there's a certain amount of pride in the accomplishment of that. They're incapable of seeing sin. They're incapable of seeing wickedness. That's what's in their heart. And so David says that this sin speaks to them, flatters them, and they're incapable of seeing their own sin. That's the world that we live in, folks. Now, we're somewhat buffered here in the United States because of the Christian influence. There are other places in the world that we can go to that I think we'd be shocked at what the world is like and sees because, again, here there's been somewhat of a Christian residual influence that still exists, a moral compass to some degree, but we're radically seeing that diminish or radically seeing that disappear. In fact, there was something the other day, I don't remember, was it, uh, Sandy, was it you that posted the Barna? Yeah. Something like the estimates that only 10% of children raised in church today maintain their faith after leaving, which matches up with some of the stuff that Ken Ham and Answers in Genesis has published. So we'll see more of that continue. The second thing that 
David says here about the ungodly is that they actually commit themselves to sin. I want you to look at verses 3 and 4 with me. He says, The words of his mouth are wickedness and deceit. He has ceased to be wise and to do good. He plans wickedness upon his bed. He sets himself on a path that is not good. He does not despise evil. Jesus said that what comes out of the mouth actually is what's born in the heart. Matthew chapter 15, verse 18, he says, But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile the man. That's pretty much what David says here. The words of his mouth are wickedness. He ceases to be wise and do good. He plans wickedness upon his bed. He sets himself on a path that's not good. He does not despise evil in his heart. David actually lists five different things here. The words of his mouth are wickedness and deceit. That simply means that reveals what's in his heart. He says he ceased to be wise or good. You know, Romans chapter 1 actually paints this picture of why the world is the way it is. It says that God has revealed himself to all creation, but he says that man rebels. He suppresses the truth and unrighteousness. He covers up God's goodness and righteousness by his own sin. And then there's this progression that happens through that text where it says that God hands him over. And ultimately it says he gets to the point where his mind is depraved. He can no longer see good. He can no longer be wise in the things that he does. That's what we see. The world ceases to be wise. They cease to do good. Third thing he says is he plans wickedness upon his bed. It simply means that he thinks about and he plans ways to do wicked things. I don't think there's any surprise that we have people in our culture and society who do just that very thing. They deliberately plan to do wicked things. I don't think that we're necessarily immune. I mean, most of us here, I think all of us are probably saved. Could you say about yourself, and I won't ask for a show of hands, that you never plan to do sin? I think, you know, the scriptures tell us that he who says he has no sin deceives himself and calls God a liar. Even the saved sometimes struggle with doing things we know we really shouldn't do, but the picture here is more in the idea of planning, scoping out. Again, I point to our current political climate here um, and the stuff that's happening. And some of it you look at and you go, how can you in good conscience sleep at night? It's obvious what you're doing. You know, just recently we had, um, you know, was it Amy Robach from NBC? I don't know if you've seen any of that. Um, The whole... Epstein stuff, the Me Too movement. Well, there was some a hot mic video caught um, that was leaked from NBC. I think it was NBC um, ABC. or ABC, where Amy Robach was saying, "I had I had these details two years before this stuff came out, but it kept getting squashed at the network." I'm thinking, how could you squash such abuse? Because whatever for whatever reason, you know, well we were threatened or we were. I look at some of that stuff and I think, you know, you you plan wickedness. You deliberately think of ways to be offensive. Fourth thing he says is he sets himself on a path that's not good. The NIV and NET render it as committing themselves to sinfulness. You know, many are committing themselves to wickedness, to sin, deliberate. There was a... um, 
I don't know if how many of you heard about it just recently here. I think I've got it later on in my notes. Um, somewhere in my notes here, but, um, oh, here it is, right on the page in front of me. How many of you are aware of the recent sex trafficking sting in Delaware, Ohio? Happened in Delaware, Franklin, and Fairfield counties mid-September. 100 people arrested, including a youth pastor, an ER doctor, and 36 women who were associated with groups that were supposed to be helping victims of sex trafficking. But what were they doing? They were involved with sex trafficking. A youth pastor, an ER doctor, and to me, the most startling, 36 women who were counseling women who had been sex trafficked that were doing it themselves. They set themselves on a path that is not good, or again, as the NIV and NET say, they commit themselves to sinfulness. Now, this is the extreme example. How people can do this? It's beyond me. But knowing the sinfulness of man and knowing my own sinful tendencies, it shouldn't be all that shocking, should it? I think we sometimes forget that that is actually the nature of every man, woman, and child apart from a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Again, we are somewhat buffered and protected here because there is still a Christian influence in our culture and society. It's one that is waning, but most of our laws, our principles, our cultural standards um, are still built upon how this country was founded. And so there is still this residual Christian veneer, if you will. And sometimes we forget, many of you will probably say, well, I know a lot of non-Christians, and they're not like this. They're not bad people. Maybe not by some standards, but by God's standards, they certainly are. I want you to turn to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. Jump down to verse 9. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all, for we have already charged that both Jews and Gentiles, or Jews and Greeks, in other words, everybody, are all under sin. There's none righteous, not even one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There's none who does good. There's not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their path. And their paths of, or, and the paths of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. What Paul's point there is he's laying out his treatise on the gospel is that every single human individual is plagued by one very specific common trait. Sin. Now we 
in our minds like to categorize and say, well, this is bad or worse than this. This sin is worse than this sin or this person is worse than this person. We have a tendency to build scales and all that. But the reality of it, as David points out here, the nature of man apart from God is wickedness. They commit themselves to sin. They're flattered by their sin and many oftentimes are incapable of seeing their own sin apart from a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. So it really shouldn't surprise us when we look around and see things like human trafficking or any of the other ills that we could point out in our culture and society. That's the nature of man. And we forget that sometimes. Now again, that doesn't mean that when we look at people that they're as bad as Hitler all the time. And again, we can categorize in that, but the reality is we have to remember what's in the heart of men and women apart from a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Because ultimately the standard is God, is it not? Perfect righteousness. That's the standard. And everything falls short of that. So even the best human, with all the good that they may try to do, still misses the mark, Paul says, ultimately in the book of Romans. That's exactly why Christ had to come, is it not? That's a pretty terrible picture that he lays out here. But that's the world. As we look at the scriptures and we look at how prophecy is fulfilled, we see this march towards rebellion. It's made pretty clear in the scriptures. What we see happening here in the United States with the abandonment of Christian principles and moral ideas is just a slow march towards rebellion. So what does David then contrast that with? Well, again, he contrasts that with God's faithfulness. Instead of coming out now and saying, but God's not like this, but man who love, but men and women who love the Lord are not like this. Instead, he decides to contrast that wickedness with God's faithfulness. Look at verses 5 through 9. David is going to highlight three things about God's faithfulness. The first one is found in verse 5. He says this, Your loving kindness, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the sky. Now that word loving kindness, we've pointed that out before. It's a common word in the Old Testament. It's the, it's the Hebrew word hesed. It's a word that sometimes requires multiple words to define. You'll see here it's translated as loving kindness. There's an element of love to it. There's an element of kindness to it. There's also an element of faithfulness to it. I prefer to translate it as covenant loyalty, meaning that loving kindness of God refers to his faithfulness to his people. When God covenants with somebody, with someone, he remains faithful to the extreme. We see that with us, where in the book of Romans we're told that nothing can separate us. When we commit our lives to Christ, he says nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. Doesn't matter how deep things are, doesn't matter how high things are, nothing, death, nothing can separate you. Why? Because of God's covenant loyalty, his loving kindness. That's the kind of God he is. And so he says here in verse 5 that the loving kindness of the Lord extends to the heavens, his faithfulness reaches to the skies. That's a theme that we see repeated throughout the Bible, especially in God's relationship with Israel. We've gone through a couple of books of the Bible that highlight that struggle that Israel constantly had. I mean, think about the book of Judges, this constant 
spiral. Israel's blessed by God, then they decide to rebel against God, he brings judgment upon them, then he brings them somebody to save them from that, and then they go right back to the same behavior. And they do that over and over and over and over again. And what we find is that God continually throughout that whole entire process remains faithful to Israel. So even the book of Judges contrasts the wickedness of Israel with the faithfulness of God. Romans chapters 9 through 11. When Paul is laying out the gospel, he takes a break in the middle of the book to talk about God's faithfulness to Israel, who ultimately rejected his Messiah. And yet Paul says, God's still not done with them yet. God's still faithful to them. Their time will come. And we do see that in the way that the scriptures are laid out. That God is not unfaithful to Israel, even though they have been unfaithful. Why? Because of his loving kindness. So that's no less true of us Christians. I'm going to read a couple of passages here for you. You don't have to turn here with me. I'll give you the citation and I'll read it. 2 Timothy 2.13 says, If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Now what that basically means in that particular context is that when we struggle in our faith, God stays faithful to us because he can't deny himself. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 3 says, The Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you from the evil one. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you are able to bear. 1 John 1, 9, If we confess our sins, he is faithful. And he's just. And he will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. 1 Corinthians 1, 19, or 1, 9. God is faithful by whom you are called into fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And the last one is Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Why? Because he who promised is faithful. The faithfulness of God, the loving kindness of God, is a theme that runs from Genesis 1, 1, all the way through the book of Revelation. It's repeated over and over and over. God is faithful. God is faithful. God is faithful. And so basically what David does for us here is he tells us that God's faithfulness has no end. That's why he says it reaches all the way to the heavens, all the way to the deepest part of the seas. So the first thing we learn about God's faithfulness is that it never ends. It's reliable. The second thing that David mentions about the faithfulness of God is found in verse 6. He says, Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like a great deep. O Lord, you preserve man and beast. I would say this in terms of summary, that God's faithfulness is seen in the way that he preserves his creation. Remember what he did with the flood? Why did God do that? We're told in the book of Genesis that the reason God wiped out the earth with a flood was because it had gotten to the point where it was filled with violence. That's all there was. Violence. But he looks down at Noah and his family and saves a few and rescues his creation. He could have just wiped it all out. He could have just said, forget this. It's not worth it. We see his preservation in other places. The NET actually uh, renders this verse. Your justice is like 
the highest mountains, your fairness, like the deep sea, you preserve mankind and, and the animal kingdom. So what David is basically doing here is saying God's faithfulness is seen in the way that he cares for both animal and human life. We might refer to this uh, as God's um, common grace. There's this concept, two concepts in the scriptures, common grace in general or in specific grace or special grace. Common grace is that which God extends to everything. Think about it for a moment. Why is God patient with all the stuff that happens? He is a righteous God. Why doesn't he just squash everybody that sins and, well, first off, there'd be nobody left, right? God is awfully tolerant. He's very patient. Um, He sees what's going on. The scriptures tell us that. But he continues to preserve. A certain measure of grace is extended. The fact that he sends the rain upon the good and the bad alike. The fact that even the wicked have enough food sometimes in their belly. It kind of boggles our mind a little bit. But God is protecting his creation. And it's an example of his faithfulness. And I believe part of it is primarily because of us. In Second Peter chapter 3, um, Peter's addressing those who are saying, where, where, where is God? How come he hasn't come back yet? He promised us he'd come back, restore all things, and he hasn't done it yet. And Peter basically says, ah, Lest you forget that God is a very patient God. And the only reason he's being patient is because he desires for all men to come to saving faith. In other words, God's faithfulness is seen in the way that he patiently preserves and waits and protects. And I believe that it's all part of God's plan to use his kindness to drive us to repentance according to Romans chapter 2. In other words... God's faithfulness is seen as you look around and you, and you say, why doesn't God judge all this? Why doesn't God squash every sinner? Why doesn't God just wipe it all out and start over again? It's because of his faithfulness. He made a promise to Adam and Eve. He made a promise to Eve. He made a promise to Abraham. He made a promise to Isaac. All the way down, he's made a promise to us. All these things, God is going to be faithful to that and will ultimately do exactly what he said. And it's already seen as you look around and see God's preservation of mankind, his common grace. The third thing that he mentions is that God's faithfulness is a refuge for those who seek it. Look at verses 7 through 9. He says, How precious is your loving kindness, O God! And the children of men take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They drink their fill of the abundance of your house, and you give them to drink of the river of your delights. What a a great word picture that is. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. So the third thing that David says about the faithfulness of God here is that it's a refuge for those who seek it. He says it's God's faithfulness is precious signs value to it. Um, The reason that God's faithfulness is precious is because it's there where we find our protection. Think about that for a moment. I was working on another psalm yesterday that mentions the word hope quite often. And that's really the core of the gospel, is we have a hope in something. And what is our hope based in? It's ultimately based in the faithfulness of God, is it not? Because our hope is that we will be resurrected to life just like Christ. The only way that's going to happen is if 
God's faithful. He promised us something, and so really our hope is based in God's faithfulness. It's where we find our refuge, it's where we find our hope, we find our protection. You ever notice that John's encouragement for believers when we sin is that we're supposed to confess our sins to him? Remember what Adam and Eve did in the garden? You know, they sin, immediately they go hide. They ran away. I know that when I struggle with sin, I want to run away and hide. But what John tells us is, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In other words, what John tells us is, when you sin, seek refuge in God's faithfulness. Because he will forgive you. If you go and confess, he will forgive you. There's refuge in God's faithfulness. So we don't have to run and hide. Paul writes in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, that it's that kindness of God that is intended to drive us to repentance. Why is God so kind? Why is God so faithful? Drawing us to himself, to repentance. So in other words, rather than running away and hiding from him like Adam and Eve did in the garden, we should seek refuge in his faithfulness because we know that he's going to forgive us. And so we find David, as he looks at this, what he's done is he's basically looked at the wickedness of man, and I would assume, knowing what we know of David, that he recognized himself in that picture. The rest of the Psalms make it really clear David recognized his own sinful, wicked nature. And as he looks at that, Instead of setting up this new rule, I'll just be more righteous, I'll just be better, he focuses on God's faithfulness instead. So he contrasts that wickedness of man with God's faithfulness, and he gives us these neat truths about God's faithfulness, that it's never-ending, that it's seen in the way that we can look around and see what God does with his creation, that it's a refuge for those who seek it. David gives us all these neat principles on God's faithfulness and why it's so important that when we ourselves struggle should likely focus on God's faithfulness too. I think our tendency oftentimes is we push back. If we struggle with sin, we'll just be better. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. Or when we look at the world and we see the world do what the world does and we say, that's wickedness. We want to push back with righteousness. Demand righteousness from them. Instead, we ought to be reminding them of God's faithfulness. Should we not? Remind them of the gospel. The solution to wickedness is not righteousness. The solution to wickedness is God's faithfulness. The last thing David does here, and we'll use this to conclude our study this morning, Verses 10 through 12, David prays for the Lord's continued faithfulness. David knows that the Lord's faithfulness is reserved for those who know him. If you look at verse 10, he says this, Oh, continue your loving kindness. Notice that it says, Continue your loving kindness to those who know you, and your righteousness to the upright in heart. So David, as he looks at this, says, Lord, continue your kindness to me. Continue to be faithful to me. In this instance, David actually calls on the Lord to be faithful by protecting him from the wicked. If you look at this, this is rather interesting. Look at verses 11 and 12. Let not the foot of pride come upon me, and let not the hand of the wicked drive me away. 
There are doers of iniquity, or there the doers of iniquity have fallen. They have thrust down and cannot rise. David uses the word picture here straight out of the military, as I mentioned before. It's that idea of when you would conquer your enemy, you would put your foot on their neck. And so David describes this as pride putting its boot on David's neck. And so what we have here is he kind of takes this military picture and he twists it around a little bit, but he's going to focus on two things, internal and external. Um, I'll call them sources, if you will. Forces that act upon him. David recognizes that one of the internal forces that could easily drive him away from the Lord is his own sinful pride. And so he asks the Lord here, don't let that happen. Don't let the foot of pride rise up within me. Don't let it drive me away from you and your presence. Well, we know that sin does that, do we not? It's hard to feel comfortable in front of the Lord. It's hard to go and sit down and pray when you know you've got sin that you haven't dealt with. And David says, don't let that rise up within me. But the other source, the other force that acts upon him, he says, are those outside. He says, the hand of the wicked, don't let them drive me away. What's he referring to there? I believe that what he's referring to there is the influence of culture and society around him. We've heard the phrase, bad company corrupts good morals. What happens when we are running around getting our feet dirty in the world? Oftentimes we act like the world. And when we do that, it drives us away from the presence of the Lord. And so David refers to these two forces, the internal and the external, his own internal sinful pride versus the influence of the world outside of him. He says, Lord, don't let those things drive me away from you. Don't let those things remove me from your presence. Because David realizes and recognizes that the only thing that can protect him from that is God's faithfulness. And that's what the scriptures promise us. The Psalms are filled with David crying out to the Lord for his protection from these types of things. One of the things I love about this Psalm is that it's actually a foreshadowing of the gospel. The gospel didn't start with the New Testament. We see it as far back as the fall, where God promised a seed to Eve. But the Old Testament is filled with the gospel. just didn't have a name yet. didn't have the name of Christ on it. And we see that reflected in this psalm where we have mankind's wickedness contrasted with the faithfulness of God. And we know that ultimately the Lord did that by providing Christ as a sacrifice for us. That's his faithfulness. He promised us all the way back in Genesis, after the flood, when he looked at Adam and Eve and said, what did you do? The next thing out of his mouth, in some respects, a paraphrase is, okay, I'll fix it. I'll send a seed. It's called the Proto-Evangelon. And we see that unfold. And God's faithfulness has always been his solution to mankind's wickedness. And we see that here. I think practically, then, for us... I think we need to focus more on God's faithfulness. I think sometimes as Christians we have a tendency to um, muscle through Christian life on our own. Meaning, um, we sin and we try to deal with it, I just won't do it anymore, you know. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't try, we do need to try. But ultimately, like David, David cries out to the Lord here. We don't see David in this psalm say, well, I'll just be better. I'll do better, Lord. 
pours his heart out and says, Lord, don't let it happen to me. Protect me from the internal pride. Protect me from the influences on the outside. Your faithfulness can overcome my own wickedness. And again, I think that fits into the concept that Paul highlights in Romans 2, which is that it's the kindness of God that drives us to repentance. Thank God he is faithful. Because if anything, that should drive us then to repentance as well. I'm going to go ahead and just wrap it up with that. But again, I love this psalm because we often don't think about the gospel until we get to the New Testament. But this is a perfect description of the gospel and what God has done for us in contrasting our wickedness and providing a solution through his faithfulness to us.